Well, I don't know about you guys, but I am enjoying looking forward to things again, which was something that I didn't feel like I could do for a while there, but I am greatly looking forward to having our baby dedication and the uh, shower that we're going to have in a couple weeks. I am looking forward to uh, going uh, to a conference next month, uh, and I'm very much looking forward to celebrating a holiday that takes place two months from tomorrow. I think we all know the holiday I'm talking about, and I'm hoping that everything is enough back to normal that it can't you know completely cancel this holiday october 31st anybody else get excited anybody else decorate their their yard or anything i would like to this is my personality just go nuts over the top and just completely transform the front of the house my wife thinks that's tacky and so we have found a happy uh, medium here for the last 15 or so years on our door has been uh this this gentleman here. Uh, his name is Seamus McNobelly. That's what we named him. In fact, his name is Seamus Bones McNobelly. When you have two novelists married together, we've so developed his backstory that we know not only his Christian name, but his like nickname, his street name here. So everybody say hi, Seamus. All right. He goes uh, by the head. He's got a little, a little uh, hanger here, and I'm going put to him, put him right here for you to all see. And, uh, of course, I get really excited when I, when I start to see things like this out there. I think October 31st is coming, the great day, the holiday, Reformation Day. You know what I'm talking about, Reformation Day, October 31st, the day that in 1517 Martin Luther nailed the 95 theses to the door of the Castle Church in Wittenberg. This act which it, it kind of sent out ripples through the entire Christian world and it, it spawned the Lutheran Church and the Reformed Church and the Presbyterian Church and our Baptist movement, the particular Baptists, and even led then back around to a, a uh, Roman Catholic counter-Reformation. I mean, one thing having this great effect and, and causing all sorts of spiritual renewal in the world. And you may be wondering, Zach, what on earth does Seamus have to do with Reformation Day? But some of you do understand because you looked down at your Bible, which is a great place to look for answers, and you saw the first few words of our text today in Ephesians chapter 2. You see, the, the thing that gave rise to the Reformation is that men like Martin Luther and John Calvin and John Knox and John Bunyan, all the Johns, they, they recognized that there was something missing from our understanding of the gospel and that something is found here in Ephesians 2 and it can be summed up in one visual, which is Mr. Seamus McNobelly hanging now from the pulpit. And, and here we see... A, a, a kind of a, a little shift in our study of the book of Ephesians in the direction that Paul is looking in the direction that he's pointing us because we've gone now through the whole first chapter and we've seen him kind of pointing ahead largely. He's been talking about the hope we have. He's been talking about the inheritance that we have in Christ and, and how we have foreshadowings and foretasting of that now. But instead of looking forward, instead of looking where he is in this moment, he is now looking back at his life. And he's not going to look back in the way that I tend to, with nostalgia and whimsy at the good old days. When Paul looks back at his life before Christ, he is looking at the bad old days. And, and, and if you want to know what someone believes about the gospel, this is probably the best place to start. To say, how far did the fall cause us to fall? What is the situation of someone who is outside of Christ? Someone who has not put their faith in Jesus and been born again? 
Now, it's quite clear, again, from the reading of this text what the Scriptures teach, but that doesn't stop many people from saying, well, I mean, I believe in Jesus, but I think everyone's pretty much okay. Those who are outside of Christ, they're, they're healthy enough spiritually. They could probably use Jesus to give them a boost, right, to point them in the right direction, help them live their best life, be their best self. But certainly they're not born in sin. Certainly they're not under the wrath of God or anything. Then there are those who are far more biblical in their view, who would say the state of people outside of Christ is that they are sick. They are spiritually sick. They have a disease called sin, and that disease requires a remedy, and the only remedy is Jesus Christ, according to the Scriptures. And so they would say this is, in fact, the, the further toward the Scriptures they are, the more serious they will say this disease is. It is a terminal illness. It is it is incurable, and unless someone takes hold of that remedy and ingests it, they are not going to make it. That there is nothing then but the second death beyond. Then, of course, there is a view that is even further along than that, and that is the view that we see here in Ephesians chapter 2 and throughout all of the writings of St. Paul. We see this is the view of Jesus in John chapter 6, the view that you were dead in trespasses and sins, before you were born again in Jesus Christ. You were dead, and not in the sort of hyperbolic way that we sometimes say, you're dead when we're mad at someone, or you're as good as dead if you don't stop you know, eating all that cholesterol or something. Not on the way to death, not on the verge of death, where, where you're on your deathbed, and if you don't take the medicine soon, that's it, but actually dead. Those are the words of the scriptures here. You are dead. And so we see the reason that we read stuff like Romans chapter 4. There is none who is righteous, no, not one. All together have become worthless. There is none who seeks God. There's none who seeks God because dead people don't seek anyone. Look, he's just hanging here. Look, there he is. He's just... And and so we, we understand the scripture presents a picture that is uncomfortable for us. Where we are helpless and dead in our sins apart from the work of Christ in our hearts. And yet, throughout the scriptures, the evidence given for the fact that we were dead in our sins is the way that we lived, walking according to the passions of the flesh. And that seems like a tension, almost a paradox. You know that you were dead because of the way that you lived. Jonathan Edwards had a sermon about this in which he talked about walking corpses. They were dead, but they were going through the motions of everyday life in this kind of macabre way. And it would be a hundred more years before this word would enter our language, but what he was describing were zombies, right? Some of Seamus' best friends are zombies, so be careful. But the idea of the zombie, you know, it was very popular for a while in the 60s, and then it kind of faded away, and then it's come back, and it's, it's really back now. You got The Walking Dead, The Walking Dead 2, where the zombies are very, very, very scary, right? Fear the Walking Dead, because, you know, you need, that, that lady has like a samurai sword. Everybody's very, very intense about dealing with these zombies. Then you got the funny stuff, Zombieland, they made another one of those recently, uh, Shaun of the Dead, I don't know if anyone's seen that one, but, but the notion of it being kind of goofy. And I think the reason that we find zombies in our culture either horrific or hilarious or a combination of both is because it's such an unnatural, bizarre, macabre idea for people to be dead and yet walking around. And that is exactly the Apostles' point. They're going through the motions. It's like the sixth sense. I see dead people. They don't know that they're dead. They're walking around like regular people. Maybe they know it, but they don't want to think about it. They don't let themselves realize it. 
It's like the man who walked into the doctor's office. And the doctor said, what can I help you with? And he said, well, I'm dead. And the doctor said, excuse me? I'm dead. Oh, wow, what's wrong? No, I'm actually dead. I've been dead for months. I doubt there's anything you can do for me in that I'm dead. And the doctor realized immediately, this is outside of my realm of expertise. This guy definitely needs some psychological help or something. But he couldn't resist the argument. And so he said, no, you're not dead. You're talking to me. And he said, well, yeah, but that doesn't mean I'm not dead. Round and round they went. Finally, the doctor starts pulling medical texts off the wall. He walks him through this whole argument to show him that dead people do not bleed. And so he walks up, he even gets on the phone with a friend of his who's a mortician, and he's like, yeah, dead people don't bleed. And finally, after hours of convincing him, the man says, all right, yeah, dead people don't bleed. Sure, so what? The doctor grabs his finger, stabs it with a pin, blood starts to bubble out, and the man says, oh my goodness, dead men do bleed. Right? So you have the idea that in, in the face of all the evidence, he's just going to shift the evidence. Well, that's what's going on with the rest of mankind, only backwards. Against all evidence to the contrary, that there is nothing but spiritual death reigning in this place, people will say, no, we're alive. We're well. We're happy. We're fulfilled. And yet the evidence is there. And when the church says, no, you need Jesus to bring you from death into life, there's nothing but mockery and scoffing. Because when you're a zombie, it's impolite to talk about the fact that you're a zombie. Really, all zombies say is like, sometimes brains. Other than that, not much. And, and, and I agree that it's a little bit goofy, but Paul's not laughing here because when in the spiritual realm, when something is, is as serious as this, a situation of people being dead in trespasses and sins, the result, the consequence, is frightening and heartbreaking. He says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins, and when you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at aim, and the sons of disobedience among whom you once lived in the passions of your flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and you were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. And the result there is that we were children of wrath by nature. This means that you weren't born as a tabula rasa and then later on you make your decision and you become either very good or very evil. No, by nature you were children of wrath. That's a Hebrew idiom, children of wrath. It means you belong to wrath or are destined for wrath in some way. And so what Paul's doing here is he's assuming and affirming what we call the doctrine of original sin. The idea that you are born with the guilt of Adam upon you and that even that sin must be paid for if we are going to be saved. In fact, we, we hear the same thing throughout the Reformation. Again, a reminder of Seamus there that the Reformation is a, a great rediscovery of the Gospel. John Calvin said that just as the serpent comes from, the, from birth with all of its venom, so we carry with us all of our sin from the womb. We call this the sin nature or the flesh. It's one of our three great enemies. And all three of them are referenced here. Yes, the, the flesh here, the fact that we are by nature children of wrath. Also, the devil. We used to follow the prince of the power of the air. That's the enemy. That's, that's Satan. And then he says, we followed after the course of this world, and we followed the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Now, if you read this really fast, you might think that the spirit at work in the sons of disobedience is another word for the devil. 
but it can't be. This is one of the few places where looking at the Greek behind your English translation lets you see something that you can't in your English translation. Because when you're reading Greek, there, there are certain things that we don't have. One of them is it's called cases, and it sort of color codes the, the text for you. So you can look at it and you can say, this word can go with this word because they're both green, but it can't go with that word because this one's green and that one's red, to, to kind of oversimplify it. This spirit of disobedience, this spirit that is now at work, cannot be Satan. Rather, it is the world. It is the corrupt system. It is the, the absolute uh, spirit of rebellion that we see at work all around us all the time. And for that reason, we are, having willfully followed after these things, children of wrath. Or we were, anyway. Again, talking about the bad old days. Not the present for the Christian. And when I hear wrath, I often think of my own kind of rage that boils to the surface sometimes. I used to have a huge, huge problem with anger and rage. It's under control until a computer enters into the mix or some kind of digital device or something that's going to just make me so mad because it's supposed to work and it doesn't work. And why doesn't it just work? And I, get, I go from zero to 120 in like three seconds. And I, and I flash of rage, angry. I get all mad. And then I have to apologize to everyone around me and feel stupid. That is not what's in view here. God's wrath is not flashes of rage. I've heard people mock the gospel because, oh, you've got this God, he creates us, he gives us all these rules, and then he just waits for us to break them, and then, boom, he smites us. That's not the picture we have in Scripture, not in the least. No, the word for wrath is orge, and it comes from a root that means to ripen. Things ripen slowly. They ripen a little bit at a time. Right? So we see the ripening, ripening of God's wrath. He is long-suffering. He is slow to anger. And yet for those who persist in being uh, sons of disobedience, following after the prince of the power of the air, there is the reality of Hebrews chapter 10 that it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Again, these are the bad old days. If you are in Christ, if you have put your faith in him, he's not describing you. We are not objects of wrath. In 1 Thessalonians 5, we read, God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. That is what our destiny is. To receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. And yet, there is the rest of mankind and as those who have been bought by the blood of Jesus and looking out at the rest of mankind, we cannot just say, well, I'm okay, and not worry about the rest. And we can't just suggest, all right, well, we're, we're going to say, listen, listen up, all of you who are walking over the edge of the cliff willfully or zombie walking toward the edge of the cliff. Come this way. That's not smart. Let me just let me convince you. Let me argue with you. What needs to happen here is no small thing. When dead people come to life, what is required is a miracle. Right? You can't do it, and neither can I. B.B. Warfield, that great lion of Princeton, reminds us that dead men don't need good advice. They don't need ten steps to a better you. They don't need four spiritual laws. They don't need health, wealth, and prosperity. Dead men need life. And for them to come to life requires a miracle. Remember when we were studying through Acts, there was that time that Paul preached way too long and way into the night, and a young man, Eutychus, fell out the window, landed on the ground, and died. Now, had Paul gone down there and said, oh, Eutychus, 
What are you doing, man? You never sit in the window during a long uh, time of preaching, especially we got oil lamps going, we got fumes in the air. Think about it, man. He can't give good advice to this guy. He's dead. No, first he raises him from the dead, a wonderful miracle. Then you can talk to him. Then he is in a position to receive something. And that is what we need. We need Jesus to do the miracle, to take the dry bones and bring them back to life, like we read about in the book of Ezekiel. And I know there are definitely those saying, oh, come on, it is the 21st century. How are you still talking in this way? No one talks those, those terms anymore. And it's true. It's true that a lot of people do not. A lot of people want to gather around them, as the Scriptures predicted, teachers who would say whatever my itching ears want to hear. I know a lot of people who will even just admit, yeah, I like watching that preacher because he never mentions all that hellfire and brimstone stuff. It's never about God's wrath or sin or anything. Or I, I really like listening to her because it's all just love and mercy and good vibes. Well, if that's your bar, you definitely would not like the preaching of Paul, who we are reading here, who wrote the majority of the books of the New Testament, and you certainly would not like the teaching of Jesus Christ. But the fact that people continue to mock this very notion is just further evidence that they are dead in their sins, that they are slaves to the world. The world that says, listen, we all kind of know that we're spiritually dead, but let's not talk about it. Don't acknowledge it. Don't think about it. Say it together. We don't see because we don't want to see. The Reformers called this the bondage of the will. The bondage of the human will that not only do I find myself unable to throw off my sin and to choose to live a life glorifying God and enjoying Him forever, which is what I was created for, I actually don't want to. I don't have the desire to do it. Because my bondage, uh, my will rather, is in bondage to sin, to death. It's enslaved. And there's this great irony then that the world says, oh my goodness, look at all the religious people in the religious shackles, still stuck in these old stupid ideas. And then look at us. We are free. We're free thinkers. We're free spirits. We're, we're free of religion. We're liberated. You heard of this, you know, sexual liberation. We do whatever we want. We, we, we just follow our own will, and yet they willfully remain in bondage. Yes, they're free to do whatever they want, the rest of mankind, but because their will is in bondage, they will always choose self-seeking and self-serving rather than God-seeking and God-serving. My goodness, this is depressing. As if 2020 wasn't bad enough, here comes Pastor Zach with all this stuff. I tell you what I'm going to do. I am going to fold Seamus back up here. Don't worry, man couple months and it's your time to shine. I'm going to put him aside because even though he looks kind of goofy and he makes me smile, this is not what God has called us to. God does not desire the death of the wicked, but that he repent and live. And the scriptures never give us, here's some bad news, now chew on that and let it drop. No, it's always, here's the good news. Here's, here's the bad news. Let that sink in, and then we have these wonderful words, but God, right? So we get our, our whole contribution to this, which has words like death, wrath, sin, enslaved, and then we get the but God, and then we get the wonderful good news, filled with words like life, mercy, love, and most importantly, grace. I'm with Levi. I love the word but 
but perhaps for a different reason. But God is the only way we can live. Here's what we tried to do. It did not work. In fact, it was the most colossal failure you can imagine. But God, but God being rich in mercy, we read here, or, or we read in Romans 5, the same phrase, but God proves his love for us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And if that doesn't make you say amen, maybe I bring you home and put you on my door for Halloween because you're dead a little bit. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Okay. This is good news. Yes, we were under wrath, but look at these words. His love for us. In fact, in the Greek, it's even a little awkward. Loving with love, it says. And both the loving, the verb, and the love, the noun, are the word agape. Not just any kind of love, not our kind of love, but God's particular kind of love. God's unassailable, amazing love that reaches out first to those who are even yet sinners, yet his enemies, and loves us. We can only even hope to live in that kind of love because he first loved us with it. Yes, we were dead, but God raised us to life. That's the power of the resurrection. Once again, he tells us we were crucified with Christ. We were raised to new life with Christ. We were even, in a sense, ascended now to the right hand of God in heavenly places with Christ because of this kind of love. I know we've all been lately reading 11th century Benedictine monk Bernard of Clairvaux, but maybe you didn't highlight these passages, so let me drop a couple on you. Bernard says a couple things that really appeal to me as I read this text. God deserveth love from such as he hath loved long before they could deserve it. And that sounds like a bit of a tongue twister, but it says this. God deserved to be loved by you because he loved you long before you could deserve it. That's crazy. He loved you when you didn't deserve it. And now, oh, he certainly deserves your love. And then he goes on to say, his love to God will be without end, who knoweth that God's love to him was without any beginning. You will love God forever if you recognize that his love for you had no beginning. We can't even fathom this. I think of you know, people I love. I, I love my wife. When did I first tell her I loved her? In 1995. In a sense, I did. It was immature love, puppy love. What was it based on? Well, she's pretty. She's cute. She sat next to me in choir, and I thought she had a pretty singing voice. She's funny. She's fun to hang out with. She makes my heart go pitter-pat. And, you know, I just like the way it feels to be with her. She makes me feel happy. And so, in a sense, she deserved my love, and so I began to love her. A little bit at first, and then more and more and more, and 25 years later, now all the more. That is not what God's love is like. That is not what agape love is like. God looked at us while we were yet sinners, despising him, and said, I love you, and my love for you has no beginning. And because he loved us, he redeemed us. And he did it on purpose. And that's important. If you're going to acknowledge that God did not accidentally redeem us and go, oh, now I have a redeemed people, you have to recognize what Paul has been emphasizing throughout. That from the beginning, from before the foundation of the world, he chose us to be holy in him. He saved us. That his election of us is eternal. That he made the first move and loved us first so we could love him and chose us first so we could choose him. This is why Jesus in Matthew 24 calls the church God's elect. Why Paul throughout this whole 
epistle, what we've seen so far and what comes after it, emphasizes this same thing. And why Peter uh, addresses one of his epistles to God's elect strangers in this world. So that, verse 7, in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Now, all along I've been pointing out where the sentences start and stop in the Greek. I know you all care a lot. But we've been in this for months now, and literally we've only seen three sentences. <laughs> that whole opening prayer, one sentence, 202 words, the longest in the New Testament. Then that whole passage last week, one sentence. And then here, up through this point, was one sentence. And you know when Paul gets like me with the paddle ball, right? He doesn't want to stop. He wants to keep the thing going, beat his record of 202 words. But for some reason here, he says, okay, full stop, new sentence, because I am saying something that is incredibly important now, something that I want to stick in your head, a verse that many people have memorized. Ephesians 2.8, it begins with, for by grace you have been saved through faith, for by grace you have been saved. It is important for him to tell us this, but he already has. Back in verses 5 and 6, this is my favorite thing in the entirety of the book of Ephesians. When Paul, he's, he's going along real nice, this guy who's, who's just wonderful at crafting beautiful sentences, and he's saying, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us. It's just out of nowhere. It's out of place. It's right in the middle of his thought. By grace, you have been saved. And for a long time, people assumed this was a copyist error. Some scribe way back accidentally started writing verse 8 and went, whoops, and then just kept on going. But that's not how scribes work, and there's no evidence of that at all. It seems that Paul is actually interrupting himself, interrupting his own thought, and saying, by grace, you have been saved. I can imagine he did this in everyday life. How are you doing today, Paul? Well, I woke up with kind of a crick in. By grace, you have been saved. My neck. But other than that, and this is how we should be as well. How can we not be overwhelmed and filled with gratitude and awe that we have been saved by God's grace? And notice the, the order of the words here. If you thought this is a little bit strange as it's translated, it's because they maintain the word order. We would say this, we have been saved by grace through faith. Paul says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. Remember that color coding in the Greek? It frees you up to put things in uh, whatever order you want. You don't have to set the, the meaning of the words by the word order. You can say the most important word goes first. And the most important word here, karatini, means by grace. By God's unmerited favor. Something you can never earn. Something that can only come to you as a gift. Only come to you freely. By grace you have been saved. Then he says, through faith. What's the relationship between those two, the grace and the faith? Well, the reformers called our faith the instrumental means of salvation. And what that means is like when I get home today, I'm going to take my keys out. I'm going to slide a key into my front door. I'm going to turn it and unlock the door. I am what the reformers would call the efficient cause. I'm unlocking the door. The key is the instrumental cause. Or like when you're playing Clue, right? Colonel Mustard did it in the library with the candlestick. Colonel Mustard is the efficient cause. He's the one who, who did the deed there with went nuts with the candlestick. But no one's going to take the candlestick and put it on trial. No, he's the one who did it, but he used the candlestick as, as a, a tool here, just like we use the key as the tool to open up the, the door. And in the same way, our faith 
is the instrumental cause of our salvation. God, by his grace, is the one who's doing the saving. Do not lose sight of that. And then there's this little phrase, and this is not of ourselves. And there's sometimes when the color coding in the Greek doesn't actually clear everything up. And it's not clear here whether he's saying this, meaning your whole salvation is not of yourself, or by grace you are saved through faith. And this, even the faith, even the instrumental means, is not of yourself. It's a gift from God. Even the faith you exercise through which you are saved is a gift from God. It's all of His grace. Not of works, lest any man should boast. So this thing does not happen of yourself. It does not happen of your works. It is not the result of your will. Remember John chapter 1. We become children of God not by natural descent, not by the will of man, but of God. Only of God. If you are in Christ, if you are past the bad old days, it's not because you found something good in your heart, not something good out of your own merit, not something in yourself, because if that was the case, you could boast. You could say, okay, well, what separates me from the rest of mankind is that I made a good choice. Sounds like something to boast about. We talk about election here, and, you know, election's become a bit of a trigger word for me lately. I don't know why. I, you know, we, we've got this notion of elections being, okay, you put your ballot in, and, and, and D.L. Moody tried to do something cute with this. He said, listen, this is how it works. Satan has cast one ballot for your soul. God has passed, cast one, and you have the deciding vote. If that's the case, I share equal glory with God for my salvation. Sounds like I have reason to boast. No, this is all of God. In fact, our attempts to save ourselves, Jesus makes clear through his ministry, have the opposite effect. It's like I've heard that, that uh, rescue swimmers, when they would be going in to save someone who is drowning, and I don't know if this is current information. I didn't even mean to do that. Current information. Swimmers? The, the dad jokes just pour out of me. It's it, life of their own. Uh, this might be outdated. I, I assume it's still true that if you're going to go into the water to save someone and they are flailing and kicking and going nuts, if you jump in to save them, even if you're the best rescue swimmer there is, they may drag you under. The guy who taught the lifeguard class I took in high school, he said you go in and if they start pulling you under, bite their thumb off. Weird guy. But I think the real advice is you wait. You stay on the boat and you wait or you stay at a distance and wait for them to kind of kick out all the, the crazy, right? And all, all the spaz, and then you go over. Once they're accepted that they're done, they're going down, and then you, and then you rescue them. And, and I don't even know if this quite works because our situation, if we are dead in our trespasses, is not that we are drowning, but that we are drowned already and at the bottom of the sea and God comes down and, and pulls us up and gives us life. Not that we're going down for the third time and he tosses us uh, one of those life rings. I mean, look at Paul's own life and you see this at work. You might think you even see a contradiction in the scriptures here. When we consider that Paul, looking back at the old days in Philippians 3, describes himself this way. He says, I was a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Sounds like he kind of had it there. And then in this passage, he says, oh, just like you, just like the rest of mankind, I was uh, following the prince of the power of the air. I was following the spirit of disobedience. I was a child of wrath by nature. Well, the, the solution is to recognize when he looks back at all that stuff in Philippians 3, he thought it was good works, but now he realizes it was rubbish. 
a pile of, anyone remember the Greek word? Scubula, which means manure. It was, all, it was a pile of scooby-doo, what I thought was my good deeds. All my greatest deeds are as filthy rags in his sight. What he needed was not more of that, not more human righteousness, not more dead guy righteousness, but the righteousness of the living Christ. Because we are not saved by good works. Rather, the good works are the fruit of our being regenerated. Which means that they are part of the grace we receive. And the world, the flesh, and the devil will happily have us believe in God as long as we think what I do will determine my eternal destiny. It all rests on my shoulders. By contrast, St. Paul here ascribes all of our salvation to God himself. God does not aid us. He doesn't nudge us along. He doesn't inform us and let us weigh our options and weigh the evidence. No, it is all of God. He slams the door on human boasting and human works in order to open the door on grace. And it's either or. It's like one of those, those file cabinets where you have one door, drawer open and the other one's locked shut until you, it's one or the other. Because if only 1% of our salvation was of us, There's room for boasting, and it's not of grace. It is now wages. The only wages that we have earned is the wages of sin, which is death. It's only by the gift of God that we have eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. I remember seeing a story about uh, a man who was trying to earn God's favor. He was going down the road, and this was in Latin America somewhere, he was very gaunt, very ragged, he had a long beard, and he had shackled to his ankle a chain which was attached to a huge boulder. And he was going an inch at a time down this road, trying to make it to the church of St. Lazarus. And once there, he thought that he would have earned some kind of credit in God's use. It's exactly the sort of thing that led to the Reformation. And I, I remember reading this, and, and I just I was so struck by the irony. If only someone would read this guy while he goes along on his bloody elbows. Read him the story of Lazarus himself. Lazarus, who was dead, like the rest of mankind, like all of us were dead. And he was sealed in a tomb. And there he could do nothing for himself because he was dead. And Jesus showed up. And, and he said, move the stone away. And they said, but Lord, he's been in there four days. He stinketh. And he said, open it anyway. They opened it up. And he did. I guarantee everyone went, oh boy. And then what happened? Jesus said, Lazarus, if you really want to live again, let me tell you how to do it. No! He said, Lazarus, come forth. He called to him. This is what we talk about when we mean the unconditional call. The unconditional call that raises us from death to life. Lazarus come forth with a loud voice, Scripture says, meaning a voice of authority. He speaks reality into existence. He spoke the universe into existence, and here he speaks life into Lazarus. There was nothing he could do for himself. To put it in the medical terms, patient suffers from an acute case of deadness. There's no medicine. There's no treatment. There's only a miracle that can happen. And he wasn't just dead. He was also bound like you and I were. When he starts shuffling out of the grave, Jesus says to those around him, unbind him. He was all wrapped up tight in grave clothes. Unbind him. Set him free. Now, we don't read much about Lazarus after this point in the Scriptures, but do you think maybe he enjoyed life a little more? 
appreciated life a little more, thought about Jesus in a little different of terms, this Jesus who had taken him when he was dead and given him life. I'd bet green money. I've already admitted I'm celebrating Halloween. May as well admit to betting here, right? I mean, bad Baptist. But the point is, this guy understood his situation vis-a-vis death, life, and Jesus. And we need to understand that as well as followers of Jesus. And I think the reason that for some time people who hold to or, or emphasize these doctrines of election, of being chosen before the foundation of the world, have kind of a bad rap, people like the early Baptists as well, the particular Baptists, is because there is a certain attitude that can come up of, well, it's not anything I do, it's done, I'm saved, I'm safe, I'm no longer under God's wrath, doesn't matter how I live, my works don't matter, and that is not what is taught here. That's why we have to emphasize verse 10 as well, and I'm glad that you accidentally read it, Lisa. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. There is no elect people of God, no chosen people of God who is not a holy people of God. And that means that we don't put our trust in our good works, but we let our good works testify to the fact that we've been saved. They're the fruit of our salvation, of our regeneration. To reach out to someone who is is on the other side of an aisle or on the other side of a, a, an issue or, and, and say, you know what? I'm not going to shout at you and, and, and devalue you. I am going to love you. That's the fruit of being born again. In fact, if I were to boil this whole thing down to a few words, and you're thinking, if you could do that, why didn't you just do it to begin with? I don't know. I would say, this is teaching that we are saved by grace, through faith, for good works. And our salvation, we were were set apart from before the the foundation of the earth, from before there was space and time. And those good works from before we were around were laid out for us to walk in them. Let us walk in them. We get this so backwards sometimes. We say all of our efforts we put on, uh, well, I made the decision to follow Jesus. I made a commitment. I did this. I did that. No, Jesus saved me. I found Jesus. No, he found you. And then after that, we start saying, well, grace, right? It doesn't matter what I do now. What difference does it make how I live my life? No, this tells us to walk in the good works prepared for us. What does Jesus have to say on the matter? That might be a good way to close. John 6, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Is he drawing you today? Have you put your faith in him? Can you look back at the bad old days? Or... Is that where you are right now? Dead in trespasses and sins. If you have not put your faith in Jesus and if he is drawing you, calling you out, come forth to unbind you and give you life. Don't resist. Don't fight him. Trust me, he's too strong for you. And sometimes he gets nasty. Just hear the call and obey. Put your faith in him and turn from your sins. Do it now. And in John 5, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. That is our present and our future. Life in Christ. Brothers and sisters, let our lives reflect that. We were once dead, but we have been saved from death, saved from hell, saved most of all from the righteous wrath of God against sin 
And this happened not of yourself, not of our good works, not by our will, the will of the flesh or the will of man, but of God's sovereign will, saving us to good works. And next time we will look closer at verse 10 and at those good works. Same exact time, same exact channel. Now let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for a passage like this so famous, and yet when we begin to dig into it, we see that it never ceases to fill us with awe at what you've done. It never ceases to challenge us to, to reorient our view of the world and of who we are and our relationship to you. Not that you are our preference or you're an add-on module to our life that makes things a little better or a little different, but that we were dead. We were done. And then you saved us. What a miracle. And Lord, may we live like people who were once dead but are now alive, alive in Christ. And may we walk in the good works that you have prepared for us beforehand. I pray, Lord, that if there is anyone hearing my voice here in this sanctuary or at home, on the phone, on the computer, listening years down the road on the podcast, Lord, I just pray that your Holy Spirit would convict them, draw them so that they would put their faith in you receive forgiveness for their sins and pass from death and judgment to life eternal. We pray these things in Jesus' holy name. Amen.